Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for December 2019. I'm one of the editors of the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host, writer, academic and programmer, Kirsten Stevens. How are you, Kirsten? Going well. That's very good. And we're also joined by Sian Mitchell, who's a lecturer and a festival director of the Melbourne Women in Film Festival. Welcome, Sian. Thank you. Thanks for having me. On this month's show, we're looking back at the year of 2019 and uh, the Actor Awards, which we dealt with the nominations last month. And this month, we're going to look at actually who won and see whether we got any of our predictions right. You know, answer short, no. We'll follow that up by identifying our favourite moments in film and TV across the year, and we'll see what we have all come up with in terms of the images or the moments that stuck in our mind. And then we'll take a year-end look at those that we lost and those who emerged throughout this calendar year. We'll end, as always, with our recommendations for the month of December. And in our bonus segment for patrons of Senses of Cinema, we're going to be discussing our favourite Christmas films to get everybody ready for my favourite time of the year, Christmas. (laughs) Was my sarcasm clear enough in that? (laughs) Good. Okay, let's get on to the show. The Actor Awards were awarded earlier this month and some significant winners emerged from that ceremony. Uh, In the cinema categories, Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale took out the most awards with six, including Best Film, Director, Actress and Supporting Actress, while David Michaud's Henry V film, The King, came in with four. The Television Awards saw big wins for Foxtel miniseries Lambs of God and ABC's political drama Total Control. And for my money, the greatest winner as a big nerdy fan was Australian Survivor, so... I will get the opportunity to talk about my favourite TV show on this podcast and you'll all have to pretend to be interested. Um, Kirsten, actors were a big moment. What was your takeaway from the awards that actually went down? I, well, you were saying before that, you know, predictions didn't quite match up. (laughs) I felt we all predicted The Nightingale. Um, So, you know, I guess not too many surprises there. Um, I was also absolutely... Um, hoping that Deborah Malman was going to get the award and so absolutely thrilled that she took home Best Actress for the first time that we had an Indigenous woman in a leading role yes. in um, Australian television. So really quite a powerful moment um, for her to uh, get that award, but also um, the supporting actress that went to Rachel Griffiths in that was also really great. Yes. Um, I think my takeaway, though, I was really interested in how many awards the King kind of picked up. You know, know. none of the really big major ones. It was, I think it was um, supporting actor was... Um, Joel Edgerton. Yeah. Joel Edgerton, one of the, the I guess, more key awards. Um, but also then cinematography and all of these. Uh, yeah, costume kind of design. Costume design. Yeah. And just a really interesting question about, you know, should this film be in the actors, given it's, you know, shot in England and Hungary. Yes, we've got key cast and key crew who Australian, but all the money came from Netflix. So, you know, is this really an Australian film is the question. And so when it takes away four different categories, it kind of it reignites that question for me. Sure. Sian? I'm, I'm really just super happy that a woman director won the Best Director Award. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty much where my head's at with, with the awards. And, of course, Deborah Malman as well, Echo Kirsten's. Um, comments about that. I think it's fantastic that she's she's won that award too. And um, I don't in, now. In all honesty, I haven't seen it, but I'm. I, but Judy and Punch. I just wonder whether something had to be given to them. I, I don't know. It just it, the Nightingale. I enjoyed as much as you can enjoy 
the nightingale, <laughs> you know. But yeah. um, I just feel like maybe Mirror Forks kind of missed out a little bit for me. Uh, I so just we, we, we covered uh, Judy and Punch yeah. uh in our last uh, taping here, yeah. which I, I think I, we I would really... be unified on saying no. no? no. Oh, okay. All right. All right. It's just me. Then. I mean, I, just... I think I think wanting Mira Forks to get yeah. something. Yes. <laughs> Amia Boschakowska. Yeah, um, yeah. She. I think she does an amazing job. Anytime we talked about this when we when we looked at Judy and Punch, but I I, I don't feel too bad that um, none of. They, they didn't really sort of take home more. No, more kind I, I mean of Damon Harriman won for um, for Judy and Punch. And yeah, I think that was almost it. I wasn't think it? that was it. That was yeah. it. Yeah. And he, you know, his performance Music. was quite good, even though you know he's a deeply, deeply unlikable character. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah, you know, part of it I, I rather suspect is it was kind of the year of Damon Harriman because he just when he wasn't being Charles Manson, he was just being abusive in Judy and Punch. So, like, what a year for him to just beat a whole bunch of people and, up, I guess. And abusive in The Nightingale. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, <laughs> he's had quite the year of just mm. being a really unlikable human being. Um, seems like a really nice person. Plays nothing but assholes. Um, so great actor. Yeah, so great actor. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, well-deserving. What more the... could we want? Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Um, um, I also want to give a shout-out to um, one of your predictions that did come... Um, oh, Although I think you were um, perhaps looking at some of the other uh, nominations in that category, but in uh, Best Supporting Actress going to Magnolia Maymoo. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I must admit, I kind of feel like Baluda Watson got yeah. totally screwed in, in that one because, look, Magnolia Maymoo is is terrific, Like, and I don't want to take anything away from her, um, but she kind of gets that one scene and... and then she's yeah. she's gone. Whereas Baluda Watson in the second half of um, of uh, Hearts and Bones is really like she's so incredible. Like she is one of those actors where where has she been? We need to see more of her. She's incredible. So I was a little bit disappointed about that. Not to take anything away from the win, um, but but Baluda Watson sort of had my uh, had my support. And uh, talking about Hearts and Bones. Um we had the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award going to Sam Neill. Yeah. Oh, bless. That was a real. That was a really lovely speech that he gave. Um, I keep forgetting that he's kind of. I don't know whether they're married, but his partner is Laura Tingle from kind of politics, which is like, oh my god, <laughs> two people that I didn't actually put together, and there they are. Um, but they were. Yeah. Well, he was just a what a great person to get that award. Um, and he gave this fantastic speech introduced by a surprisingly nervous George Miller um, and, you know, is 100% deserving of it. When you think about the fact that he did come to acting late mm. and then crashes through with My Brilliant Career and since then has just done such extraordinary stuff from, you know, um, you know possession um, through to you know, the dish or something. Like he's had such a huge career and, and well-deserved, I thought. Mm. Where are we sitting on? I mean, just have we missed any of the? Oh, Ashling Franciosi uh, got the best actor for the Nightingale. How are we feeling about that? Might throw to Sian on that one. How do you feel? Uh, how do I feel about it? I think she did an amazing job mm. in that film. Do I you do. Know what else she's done? No. <laughs> no, neither do I. She's sort of cropped up out of nowhere. I mean, she's pretty amazing. Yeah, no, to, to have to handle what she had to do, um, yeah. I think she did an incredible job. Um, I mean, I 
I do really love Miranda Tapsell though. So I, do I. Yeah, was, I just she was that... charming and um, in that film, the whole film was charming, and I just yeah, I would have loved to have seen her. But I think yeah. you know, considering the weight of what um, Ashley had to do, yeah, um, fair enough. Yeah. And I think yeah. I think we've mentioned this in the past as well. I, I don't think it was the award-winning performance, so I'm not at all suggesting that Teresa Palmer should have gotten the award. But every time she kind of pops up in these kind of things, I keep forgetting what a good actress yeah. she is yeah. um, and how many things I've seen her in and then kind of almost forgotten that yeah. that was her. And um, So, you know, not this time, but certainly down the track, it would be good to see her Do get a nod. Do you think there has been a trend, though, in terms of when you look at the people that won, and it's Damon Harriman, uh, just in terms of acting, um, Damon Harriman, Ashlyn Franciosi, Magnolia Maymaru, um, who won the um, uh, Joel Edgerton for the King? Maybe not Joel Edgerton, but there just seems to be this emphasis on like you're being really punished, so yes. therefore, or you're either punishing or you're being punished. Therefore, that's what acting is. Mm. Yeah, that sort of dark suffering and yeah, who yeah. suffered the most or inflicted the most suffering? Yeah. Here we go. And I, and I kind of wonder when you look at something like Miranda Tapsell or, as you say, Teresa Palmer, who are, like, charming and engaging and really kind of sweet often and funny, like, are we maybe downgrading some of those sorts of emotions for, boy, that person really suffered. It reminds me of that moment where Leonardo DiCaprio won for The Revenant and, like, I'm not a big fan of the film or, indeed, of the performance, but it's, like, he really suffered then. Like, they had to live inside a friggin' bison or something. Like, mm. like poor guy, Oscar. And I wonder whether we, we kind of lean into that idea of suffering means good. Yeah, I think I think there is that. And, I mean, this isn't a new thing for Australian cinema either to sort <laughs> of um, really lean into the dark and the the painful kind of... Um, films and stories and performances as being somehow the the best of just because it is dark and painful and mm. um, it plays into that that kind of cliche of American like Oscar winning performances, which is kind of where I was leading, yeah. right? Are yeah, we copying, in yeah, a kind of lame way. Because <laughs> <laughs> even when you look at best documentary, you know, and again, I think we talked that about this on the last pod that it was won by Buoyancy, a film that I think we both liked. Mm. Um, I certainly didn't love it. I think that there were much better films. Your, I believe, I, from memory, your pick was Book Week. Yeah. And mine was Acute Misfortune. And neither of those won. And it kind of went to, here's the child that's suffering. Yeah. At which point, like, could we be a little sunnier? Which I guess there is also, you know, when you're up against um, a film like Buoyancy that is tackling a major issue mm. and, uh, you know, to go, let's go for the lighthearted, feel-good yeah. film. Um I do wonder whether there is a little bit of, oh, we must go for the worthy, worthy in inverted commas. You know, it is it is a very worthy film. I I think I enjoyed it a bit more than yeah, you did, Mark. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I do, I do think when you come down to these awards and, you know, the same thing with the Oscars, these are awards that are voted for by people. And I do wonder if there's a bit of the, oh, I, I might have gone for the other one, but, oh, you know, yeah. that's a really serious and worthy topic. We, we need yeah. to vote for that. Yeah, D to not vote for buoyancy means I support child slavery. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> okay, fine, like you get my vote. I, I don't know whether that factors into it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would hate to think that we're heading down the green book path, but, mm. Lord. Should we talk television? Yes. 
Well, I think we've already talked a little bit of total control. You recommended it. I did. And I, when I stop working a lot, will watch it. <laughs> yes, well, you know, um, it's, I think this will come up um, in a moment as well. It's one of my picks for 2019. Um, so I, I was thrilled that it won those awards, but I think you had a favourite TV show of the year coming well, up as well. Well, yes, Or of the decade. Yeah, of, for, forever. <laughs> um, I don't know whether people know, but I am a huge Survivor fan, like a, a besotted, ridiculous, embarrassing Survivor fan. I'm the big Survivor nerd. Um, so I'm used to the kind of responses where people say, oh, is that show still on? Um, because it has been going for 20 years in the States. Um, Australia has started their own uh, version over the last couple of years. We did have one version and a celebrity version, like in the early noughts, um, which were terrible. Uh, but since it's uh, been picked up by Channel 10, it's actually done really well and successively each year is getting stronger and stronger. And the most recent season, which did win the Actor for Best Reality Series, was a really extraordinary, incredible season. Um, some incredible gameplay, but really good characters that started to emerge. One of the things that I loved the most about it, and it's where the show has deviated a bit from the American version, because the American version does have a kind of blokey, macho, asshole you know, kind of sanctification of the, the alpha male, which can be really obnoxious. Um, what we had in the most recent season were basically a bunch of women who weren't athletes, um, and they were people like uh, P. Miranda, who's the actor, uh, Janine Ellis, who is on Shark Tank and is a businesswoman, um, and Abby Holmes, who is a uh, AFL, uh, WAFL football player, or was, um, they sort of banded together and became this incredible bunch of ladies who just ruled that entire season and knocked off all of the alpha dudes who were like, but I am behold my muscles. They're like, yeah, you're a dick, and got rid of them all. It really was a quite extraordinary season of um, people who would normally be overlooked in that show rising to the top and just being incredibly astute, really smart, playing people very, very cleverly. And just cinematically, it's amazing. Um, so a well-deserved win for Survivor and Survivor All-Stars next year. The promo's already out. I do know, because I'm such a nerd, that the international Survivor watchers have spotted that promo. Everybody across the world who's into Survivor are going nuts for it, as they should. So look out for that do you, uh, in a month Do you or so. have a group of people that you do like Survivor tipping with? Because I know that sometimes... Uh, yeah, I, I have yeah. done that in the past. <laughs> yes. I've tried to move away from that because, like, I have to have some sort of a life. Um, but, yeah, no, I do the whole thing. Yeah. I've got them all on DVD. Awesome. And I am proud of it. Um, the other big winner, apart from Survivor, which, of course, deserved it completely, um, was Lambs of God. Has anybody seen that? I have. I've really enjoyed this show. Yeah. It's It's stunning. It... I mean, I, I find it really interesting because it's another example, and again, this isn't new for Australian film and TV, but the uh, playing to a kind of international, mostly British kind of um, story as a way of selling, you know, local talent, local writing, all of that, but to a world international audience. Don't want to do anything too specific about Australia because we just assume no one wants to watch. Um, but no, Lambs of God was just brilliant. Um, it's only, it's a mini series, um, limited series. I think it's four episodes. Um, it's set off the coast of the UK on an island shot, I think off the coast of New South Wales. 
Um, and it's about an order of nuns who have uh, sort of moved beyond um, a traditional kind of Catholic doctrine into something that's slightly more occultish um, and have maintained uh, their um, life on this island. The church has forgotten they exist and they send a young priest to check out the property because they want to sell it off to a, a international hotel chain and make a lot of money. And the women capture the priest um, and try to kind of fight back to maintain their life. And they, in the process, they tell these knitting stories as they sit there and knit the wool off the sheep that they raise on the island. And it's sort of this almost fairy tale kind of stories that actually delve into the abuses that they all suffered in their lives, um, reimagined as, you know, Goldilocks and Three Bears or um, Little Red Riding Hood or these kinds of stories. Uh, the first couple of episodes are incredibly strong. I think it kind of becomes a little bit much for the story to maintain by the end, but it still does a really good job. You've got Essie Davis doing an amazing um, job in that. So I think that's a well well deserved win, and I think a really interesting example of that quality television turn that's happening in Australian yeah. TV as well. Um, the other thing that, just because I know that we've mentioned it, or I think it was last month, Cesar mentioned it, um, the children's television show Bluey. Yep. Won an actor as well, um, which was fantastic. So good for Bluey. I have never watched it. Uh, Bluey is great, and I. You have watched it. I, I have nieces, so I have watched it. <laughs> okay. um, but no, it is. It's it's actually quite an enjoyable show for adults to watch, which you know I think is always a good um, sign of great children's television is when it can keep you amused regardless of your age. Mm. Um, but yeah, just a really, really great job that they're doing up there um, in Brisbane, creating this uh, children's television program that really is getting picked up around the world. Yeah. So you know, kudos. And the other thing that I wanted to point out was best documentary television program went to Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds, which is that television show where literally just like sit there with a box of tissues and cry. It is nothing. It is the weepiest show you will ever see because it's beautiful and sweet. It is The premise is literally taking a bunch of four-year-olds, putting them in an old people's home and they hang out with somebody who's really old and then everybody learns and grows and feels wonderful about themselves and an audience weeps buckets just because yep. it's it's really sweet and tender um the australian dream did get uh best feature feature documentary which is terrific i know that we've talked about that in the past um and uh anything else um i think I, i'd like to acknowledge the amazing work that the abc is doing in the field of comedy yep. yeah they've just I, I reckon they've had an outstanding year with the comedies that they've produced yeah. frayed yeah. and um of course the letdown winning Yes, it did. As well. Mm. So um, just, yeah, they're they're kicking it in comedy. I mean, it is sort of interesting that, that it tends to be, you know, SBS or um, ABC, the two mm. kind of less commercial or non-commercial. Yeah, um, although, I mean, I think that's an, an interesting thing because The Letdown's obviously up on Netflix. Mm. Um, and so even though SBS and ABC are the, the public broadcaster and the less commercial... They are also actually the the stations that are doing these massive international co-production yes, deals are. with um, places like Netflix, but also ABC in the US, a yep. number of different places. So a lot of these programs kind of come out of those co-productions, which is great news for us um, because we are getting some really great 
um, drama and great programs up. Um, but yeah, I guess they've got that flexibility, whereas the commercials have to cater to a, a, a very to a, local yeah, audience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, All right. Well, that wraps up our discussion of the actors. Um, if you want to add to our discussion, by all means, head to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash senses of cinema, or maybe tweet at, tweet at us at what's the senses of cinema Twitter handle at senses of cinema, I believe. Um, so you can leave a comment either on Twitter or on Facebook for us. A lot has happened on screen and in the world of film and television over the course of 2019. Disney has increased its ever-growing empire, acquiring 20th Century Fox. The streaming wars have broken in earnest with the arrival of Disney+, Plus, as well as forays into the market by Apple TV. We've seen the end of major franchises such as Game of Thrones, The Avengers and now the Skywalker storyline in Star Wars, all the while knowing full well that we haven't seen the end of any of these story worlds just yet. We've also seen the return of old debates around the future of cinema and what is cinema, uh, raised this time in the context of Scorsese versus Marvel. Beyond all of these machinations in Hollywood, we've also had our usual slew of festivals and some truly outstanding displays of just what cinema can do. So, Mark and Sian, what stands out in your memory of 2019? Well, look, you mentioned it partly in your intro. Like, when I think about the... I'm thinking about the, the moments in film or TV that I watched that have stuck with me for the entire year. You did mention Game of Thrones. Yes, the last episode was a little bit pants. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that there has been anything more exciting than Arya taking out the Night King. Um, you know, that I did, and I think I mentioned it, might have mentioned it on the, on the podcast um, when we talked about it. But, you know, there are a million fan reactions or viewer reaction videos to that that episode and just watching that in my own home and seeing you know her be grabbed by the night king the dropping of the dagger and her success with the dagger by killing the night king spoilers um you know was so incredible that but then to watch people's faces and knowing that that was the way that you responded to that moment in in television history um was just really pleasurable. I had an absolute blast with Aria uh, in that in that episode. Yeah, sure, maybe the the show kind of petered out and just dumped a whole, dumped a whole bunch of bricks on people we would have liked to see speak. Um, but Aria absolutely is one of my favourite moments of the of the year. Yep, that's a real highlight. You know, getting to I think this kind of speaks, and I think this is what you're wanting to talk a little bit about, Sian. Just kick ass women this year. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I forgot, actually forgot about that moment. That's really <laughs> terrible of me. Um, but that is an absolute highlight for the year, for sure. Like, just, yeah, that, I remember just being on the couch watching it and just sitting up and just going, yes! <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and then the unfortunate, like you say, petering out of the yeah, rest yeah. of the series. Yeah. But, no, absolutely. Um, I think for me, oh gosh, well, there's that, there's definitely that. Um, but I think because I have a terrible memory, um, most recently just watching Midsummer, perhaps, and I'm going to talk about Florence Pugh a little bit later, I think, but, um, just her, her performance in that film and, um, that kind of really visceral screaming that she does <laughs> throughout the whole thing. But in that, in that particular moment where she's seen her boyfriend in this, kind of ritual, would you call it a ritual orgy sequence perhaps? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's, that's about what I'd call it, yeah. Um, and just, yeah, her reaction to that was like shocking to me and yeah. I loved it. 
Which this is actually something that I've seen. Um, jokingly, people kind of recreating, which has been sort of one of the weird things, um, particularly for a film like Midsummer, which I don't know, I wasn't really expecting to have a really um, wide reach, but, you know, kind of walking down the street and friends sort of like miming um, that kind of hugging their friend to leave and then kind of miming this weird kind of screaming <laughs> moment. Yeah. Going, this, is, this is a weird thing to have sort of entered into Entered pop into the culture, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, one of my moments is from the same film with the same actor, and it's just um, there is, a, again, a kind of ritualised moment because, let's face it, Midsummer's just all about ritual. But mm. um, she ultimately mm. does end up in this incredible dress that's just completely laden with flowers and watching her move around in this, like, art construction is just, in terms of images of the year, I think it's one of the most striking, incredible images um, that I saw. I mean, I, I did actually really like Midsummer a lot. I think it does have some flaws, but... Did you feel there's... that it needed an extra half hour of footage in the director's cut? <laughs> um, ma maybe not, but I will watch it. Um, because I did think it was a little overlong. But just in terms of the way that he sets up images, um, I thought was so extraordinary mm. and so incredible. Um, and that was one of them. Just you think of her, you know, not in that scene, certainly where she's doing the screaming mm. and in that dress, she really had an impact, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I think for, yeah, Ari Aster, so in thinking back to Hereditary as well, I watched that this year. I don't think it came out this year. So no. It came out last year. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, and just creating those sh those moments of shock. Yeah. Um, I think hereditary is really problematic, but uh, the that moment where the young girl has the head out of the car and like just you're not expecting it. So he do he does do that kind of yeah. that kind of shocking. His you know don't relax. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know? No, he's yeah. really good at that. Stuff. Which even though Midsummer was very very long, I think that is one of the things that did help. You know, it was what two and a bit hours. Yeah. Um. It was a film that didn't feel that long. Yeah. Um, you know, it felt long, but it didn't feel quite as long as the actual runtime was. Mm. So it, I think it speaks to that ability to kind of keep you on your edge and keep you um, riveted. I did watch the director's cut version. That's the only version I've seen. I haven't seen the shorter one. So I've watched it for two hours and like 50 minutes or something like that. So, but it's still... Is there kept more dress? Yeah, probably. Oh, I don't know. Maybe yes. <laughs> There's <laughs> more dress. I'm not sure I, mean, I could go back and watch flowers. the shorter version, but <laughs> I'm all for it. Um, one of the other moments I think that that I mean, again, I guess we're coming back to um, women in cinema. But when I think of the the images that I just responded to so well throughout the year, I mean, certainly the Florence Pugh one is is um, is central, but. The image of Margot Robbie um, in Once Upon a Time mm -hmm. in Hollywood. And again, that's another film that we've talked about. And, and another have, incredibly and, long film. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, that we had, you know, some ambivalent feelings about. But just the image of her with her, you know, and, and I don't know all of the people who like, oh, Tarantino and feet, but like, okay, I get it. But, you know, she's just barefoot, putting her feet up on the seat. Don't do it near me, but in a film <laughs> you can do it. Um, putting her feet up on the seat and just watching herself in The Wrecking Crew. Um, oh, Damn, I just loved that. That entire sequence was just so beautiful. And you can argue backwards and forwards about the rest of the film and justifiably, um, but just that moment of just pure happiness and bliss and excitement um, and promise is so wonderful. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, as my, much as I have problems with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it, it had some really wonderful moments, mm -hmm. and that's, I probably think, the best of them. Yeah. Uh, 
I guess continuing the theme of women in film, um, my favourite moments came from um, Celine Sciamma's uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, and, you know, too hard to kind of narrow down to a particular scene in that film, but just the light, particularly the use of light and that the painterly nature of that film, the way that it kind of references or makes you think of um, Dutch grandmaster paintings for me are those kinds of just beautiful kind of domestic scenes and the use of light and women within um, that kind of space. Um, there were just some absolutely stunning visuals within that film, um, as well as the film as a whole just being a really, really lovely film. Um, so that was definitely a standout. Um, for me. Um, and then again, um, Total Control, I think I'm going to keep mentioning it um, throughout today. Um, the Deborah Malman um, in the lead for that TV show and just getting to see complex women within that show uh, in positions of power, like literally within um, Rachel Griffiths's uh, Prime Minister and Deborah Malman's character coming in uh, as a minister within the parliament, this is, uh, you know, these are characters we don't get to see often um, in general, but particularly in Australian um, television. And so that combination of getting to see these complex, often flawed um, female characters, as well as getting to see Deborah Mailman stepping up to a lead role, um, such a deserving uh, winner for the, the performance that she gave. Just going on that, so I've got a couple of others. Just it's it's that it's female team ups with really complex female characters. So I've got two films from this year: Booksmart and Animals. Um, I think those those two are probably my most favourite films from the entire year because of the um, just the excellent characterisation that they had, and just really inter- and, and particularly around a, a film like Booksmart, which is a kind of you know. The, not so much a gross-out comedy, but it's 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 not you know your deep and meaningful kind of filmmaking. It's it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be entertaining. Um, and you've got just some great young actresses in those roles doing amazing things. I thought that was a great film, and also of course, of course directed by Olivia Wilde, so a female director. So yep, I, that's probably one of my my most favourite films from this year. And not involving a woman. Well, there's a woman in it does involve a lot of water uh, and lavatories. Um, the flood in Parasite, which I just that entire sequence is incredible. This kind of subterranean house that the, the, the family live in uh, and then just this flood that washes out their entire house, all of the water bubbling out out of the toilet as they desperately try and save the house. Um, that was, I mean, that's an incredible film. You know, spoilers, my favourite of the year. I just loved that film to bits. Um, that sequence in Parasite, I will remember always. If you want to tell us about your favourite moments from the year of 2019, you can head to all of Senses Cinema's social media. Uh, you can check us out at Twitter at Senses of Cinema or on Instagram at The Senses of Cinema and, of course, our Facebook page. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition. 
So we have now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the cost of keeping Sensitive Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you were to subscribe to the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast, so you don't have to be interrupted by me every month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Census Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Census, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work that they do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Census Cinema, visit censusofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring you the journal throughout your film year. As we draw 2019 to a close, it's a good time to reflect on how the year has featured the emergence of some really exciting new talent that we can look forward to in the future. But it's also a year where we lost some of our favourites who went to the big kind of IMAX screen in the sky. Um, So this year we did have some significant names that, that appeared in both categories, people that we lost, but people that we sort of found. Kirsten, if we can start off with the depressing and end on the happy... Um, who do you want to eulogise for the year of 2019? Well, I mean, we've already on this uh, podcast said goodbye to some real heavyweights. Um, Peter Fonda, uh, Doris Day, Agnes Varda. Um, so, you know, really all very amazing people and, you know, luckily living quite a long life. Um, so we've already said goodbye to them. So I'm going to pick up on some of the other people who have passed away. Um, most recently... Uh, literally overnight, um, Carol Spinney, who was the puppeteer for Sesame Street's Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch, um, passed away, um, which, you know, he retired last year. So uh, even though um, he hasn't actually been behind the puppets for the past uh, year, the contribution of Oscar the Grouch and Big Bird to so many people's lives, I mean, we're talking about 1969 when Sesame Street kicks off um, or around about then. And so, you know, this is literally someone that generations have grown up yeah. with um, and probably two of the the best known characters um, from the Muppets, Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. Oscar was probably always my favourite. I always liked the really yeah, cantankerous yeah. puppets. Yes, I like the um, angry ones too. <laughs> Animal, yeah. yep. Um, so that, you know... Uh, passed away on the 8th of December. It's a huge loss to lose. Huge loss. Um, So definitely, and another very recent person who less um, involved in the actual making of cinema, but another really big name within uh, academic circles, definitely. And I think, you know, probably one that's familiar to many of people listening to this podcast is Thomas L. Sasser, who passed away on um, the 4th of December, um, I believe just after um, giving a final lecture uh, at the Film University in Beijing. And, you know, someone who has contributed immensely to how we think about and how we talk about cinema, um, particularly around German cinema and European cinema and this idea of um, European narrative and art cinema. Um, I've relied on him a lot over the years. Like when, when you think of when you are 
studying, when you're doing a postgraduate degree, when you're teaching, like El Sace's your go-to guy. Like you go to him yeah. and he's got the, the stuff that you need. You know, Tales of Sound of Fury, I'm, I use that all the time, his stuff on melodrama. Absolutely, as you say, a lot of his stuff on German cinema, on Fassbinder, on, um, you know, kind of Weimar cinema. Like he's he's been so incredibly influential um, across academia over the last, what, kind of, 40 years or so. Mm. Um, yeah, huge loss. Very sad. Um, and then I guess the only other person sort of, you know, jumping earlier in the year, someone that we didn't talk about was Luke Perry, which, and there's sort of a, a, a bit of a, I guess, a thing with each of these people that I think, I, I know that um, Elsassa has an essay coming out about posthumous performance um, coming out uh, in a collection next year. Um, Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch kind of live on despite the puppeteer's death. Um, and Luke Perry, of course, appearing um, posthumously uh, in um, Once, Once Upon, Upon a Time, a time in, in Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and so this, and I think particularly given this is also the year that resurrect, or there was a discussion of resurrecting James Dean yeah. um, to star... And we, we got to see um, different um, performances uh, resurrected and through uh, computer imagery in Star Wars and a number of other films. Um, you know, there is this sort of uh, trend this year of both the departed but the kind of ongoing life of performers in cinema. Yeah, like a creepy... Yeah. trend of like, yeah, you might die, but we're just going to use you in perpetuity. Which is, I don't know, something about um, thinking back to our mention of Game of Thrones, what is dead can never die. We've got this kind of perpetual life of um, performers and... The big big bird is the Night King. <laughs> this this is an episode of Sesame Street I'd be quite keen to see. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're going back to Luke Perry then and the new uh, Beverly Hills and I show I know that's going to be starting, is that where we're going <laughs> Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That that actually got cancelled. So. Oh, did it? it did. Oh, I didn't hear that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it did. It, it got the boot, unfortunately. Oh, I'm I did a little watch disappointed. A bit of it and some of it was kind of fun because they to... were indeed playing themselves yeah. as actors. Oh. Yeah. Uh, no, but he was. I mean, again, another kind of terrible show that I, frankly, quite like is Riverdale, mm. which is just it's such garbage, but it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he, he was like a really solid, solid feature of that as well. Was. It's just a weird thing. Like you can't imagine that Luke Perry, who's so tied to youth, like you just, all yeah. you can think of him as being, I mean, it's true. He looked like he was about 40 when he was supposed to be in high school, mm. um, in Beverly Hills, but you know, he's tied to a kind of youth culture and to have him, he died of, was it heart attack or something, wasn't it? Yeah. A stroke or something. Yeah, a stroke it was or something. a stroke. Yeah. yeah. yeah just terrible. But perhaps also just pointing out his role in Buffy the Vampire Slayer as well, just yes. while we're talking about him, because again, it's another, that kind of youthful, iconic yeah. start of a And I think it is this, this 90s culture, which is definitely coming back, you know, this kind of resurrection um, theme that we've kind of started on. But the 90s is absolutely coming back, but it's coming back in a way that it is still tied to youth culture, even though 
you know, for those of us who lived it, it it's almost 30 years ago yeah, now, yeah. a lot of this stuff, but it seems much more recent than that. So I think it's that idea of not only is it his, his image is tied to youth culture, but there's enough of us who refuse to believe the 90s were that long ago that it feels really sudden when the yeah. people we remember from the 90s are, are passing away yeah. from things that are age more age-related than, know. Um, yeah. you know, untimely know. accidents. It just gets yeah. worse. <laughs> Every year it just gets worse. Oh, my God. So who, who are the, the people that you're um, eulogising, Sian? Uh, okay. I, well, speaking of iconic... Um, actors and characters related to youth. Um, although I will, this is not like showing my age though. I'm just going to put that out there. But um, Peter Mayhew, I just want to acknowledge Peter Mayhew and of course, you know, he, him as Chewbacca in Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, just what an, what an amazing character you yeah. know, that he performed for, for a very long time. Um, just a, yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that is, I mean, it's very sad and it's, you know, odd that you've picked up on Big Bird and we've lost the big Wookiee. Yeah. You know, there's a plushy convention upstairs. Or something <laughs> where they're all going to hang out together in their costumes. Um, yeah. I mean, and when you think about iconic um, images or characters over the last 40, 50, 60 years, I mean, Chewbacca's one of them. Mm, right? Definitely. And we don't, you know, you never really saw his face, obviously, Peter Mayhew's, but... But the, his impact his is... impact is yeah. Yeah. And again, posthumous, we're going to see Chewbacca back again very brief, uh, very shortly in a couple of weeks for, for Star Wars. The last, last, the last, Je- the last Skywalker? Skywalker. The Rise of Skywalker. There okay. we go. <laughs> is, it, is it bad that we don't know the title? <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, it's a... <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. You are correct. That's bloody terrible. Um, I wanted to give a, a bit of a, a eulogy for a couple of um, directors that we lost. Um, one is D.A. Pennybaker, mm. uh, you know, the incredible documentarian, um, who's just, I mean, particularly, he, he worked for, for years and years and years, right up until, you know, I think you know, a few years ago. Um, but his, perhaps his most notable work was during the 60s, when he was just part of the, the direct cinema movement, did such incredible, incredible documentaries, something like Primary um, or Don't Look Back. These two two really, really key um, documentaries in documentary history. Um, My own personal soft spot is for um, Monterey Pop, um, which is the... uh, a big sort of um, Monterey music festival documentary that he he did that I used to watch. It used to be on TV all the time when I was young. Um, and I watched it every single year. It always seemed to be on at Christmas and I'd because it'd always be hot and I'd be sitting down watching TV and then Monterey Pop would come up and I watched it every single year. It was where I fell in love with Jimi Hendrix and fell in love with Janis Joplin because they were both the standout performers in that, in that film. Um, he shaped documentary so importantly and so significantly. So to lose him is, you know, is a, is a real great sadness. And the other... Uh, director that we lost this year was Franco Zeffirelli. Um, and, you know, I think every single one of us and probably everybody internationally grows up doing Romeo and Juliet. And you, of course, you know, start off watching, you know, the Olivia Hussey Zeffirelli version of, of Romeo and Juliet. And then maybe you might do the Baz Luhrmann one later on. Um, but Zeffirelli you know, is part of our youth in a lot of ways because it's part of our education. Everybody or nearly everybody has to do that uh, that play early on. 
uh, in their, their schooling and Zeffirelli kind of makes that impact when you were 14, 15 and his capacity to take something like Romeo and Juliet and turn that into something that is still applicable to teenagers today I think is really extraordinary. And of course he went on to do a whole stack of other films as well that were all kind of really incredible and really notable. Um, ending with I mean, one on Maria Callas, uh, but also Tea with Mussolini. That was a really big popular kind of film during that time. Um, and a lot of stuff that is centred around opera. Um, you know, a really incredible uh, director and um, sadly missed. So now that we've eulogised and done the depressing part, um, who are the people that emerged that give us new hope for the future of cinema going forward now that we've lost these stalls? So this is the part where I talk about Florence Pugh again. <laughs> um, I mean, like, she's just going from strength to strength with her career. I remember seeing her, I think it was a couple of years ago now, in Lady Macbeth. Yes. Um, and How just, great is she in that film? She's amazing oh, in that man. film. Just that really, like, sort of subtle descent into, you know, craziness, I suppose, that she, yeah. she can just sort of just do with very small movements of her face and you can and that that final shot I just want to also acknowledge Ari Wegner's cinematography in that film um because that's that final shot of her just sitting on the couch just staring at you going oh yeah you know she's lost it like yeah, yeah. just so subtle but so powerful yes um, and then, of course, Fighting With My Family, which I think was from yes. this year as well. I really want to that, see that. Oh, it's I'm such sure an enjoyable film. It's yeah. really, really fun. Good. It is really fun. Yeah. So just her kind of going from, from Lady Macbeth to Fighting With My Family to Midsummer, of course, um, and then, you know, in, she'll be in uh, Little Women yes. um, mm. shortly too. So just these, like, this sort of gamut of different sort of roles at, at, yeah. that she's taking on. And and if you haven't seen, I think her first film is The Falling, which is a film I really deeply love. And if you haven't seen it, you really need to chase it down um, by a director called Carol Morley, um, who also has directed one of my favourite um, documentaries ever called Dreams of a Life. Oh, my God, that ruined me, that documentary. Oof rough but the falling is just incredible um it's with Maisie Williams so Aria's in it as well uh set in a girls school where a little bit like the perhaps the film that became more um familiar to people was the fits mm. um and oh, I think yeah. the falling might technically be before the fits but anyway but it's a, a same the same deal with where a group of adolescent girls just start to faint and fall over all the time um, and Florence Pugh is in that. She's incredible in that as well. So she starts with this like really, really incredible film um, with Carol Morley, and now has just continued to to build over and over over time. I think she's going to be somebody who's going to be around for a really long time. She's and, incredible. And then of course uh, the Black Widow trailer drops. Yes, yes. Was yes. it last week? And of course, you know, being another. Well, technically, her character is another Black Widow. Um, so she, yeah, just looking forward to seeing her do a bit of action. Yeah. Action yeah. film. Yeah. I mean, she, she has this history of doing these really intense, and I haven't seen Fighting With My Family, which I think is a little lighter, isn't it? Yeah. It yeah. Is. yeah. It's more of a comedy. Yeah. But I mean, she's really made her mark in terms of a kind of real intensity in terms of her acting. So to see her diversify and do some other stuff. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so my, um, uh, emerging talent. Uh, is someone that we're familiar with, has been around for a while, but has moved into a new role, which is Rachel Griffiths, um, and her move into directing. So, you know, she's still doing amazing things with um, her acting career, uh, Total Control, I'm going to mention it again. Um, she was, I think, an EP on that as well, but uh, taking the supporting role 
Um, so she's still absolutely keeping up with that acting, but moving behind the camera in a significant way this year as well with Ride Like a Girl. Um, and so, you know, that was a really enjoyable film, a really lovely film, um, and I'm keen to sort of see what else she's going to to keep working on yeah. and get her to see. It's great to see uh, actors who are able to make that transition and, and do well and bring something interesting to the screen. Yeah. Now, I, I've got a fascinating Rachel Griffith story, I can mm. tell you. you. You look interested. You're not going to be. Um, <laughs> I met her when she was about 19. Um because I was teaching at the time and she was part of something called the Woolly Jumpers. Um, and the Woolly Jumpers actually came out and did scenes from Romeo and Juliet and um, Macbeth. <laughs> and so, you know, she came out to the high school where I was teaching and it was, I think, my first year of teaching and I was about 21. And she came out and performed bits of Macbeth and performed bits of Romeo and Juliet. And I remember thinking at the time, that girl, I think I saw her on stage in Australia, um, in this particular play, and yes, it was Rachel Griffiths, and there you go. I knew her before she was really properly famous. Wow. That's why we're mates. Yeah. We're um, <laughs> not. And so who, who, she doesn't know I'm alive. <laughs> who, who is your emerging talent for the year? My emerging talent is Maddie Diop. Um, so Maddie Diop is a, is a director, and I haven't actually seen her feature, but, you know, because time, but uh, it's just been released on um, Netflix. It's called Atlantic, Atlantics, sorry. And it's kind of a remake of her short film, Atlantics, um, which I have seen, which is amazing. And she's this uh, really kind of astonishing director in terms of her visual style. She's got this really amazing use of colour um, and light and shade in terms of her the way she lights her kind of mise-en-scene. She's really uh, amazing to look at in terms of her cinema. It's really extraordinary. And that's the film that got a couple of gongs from Cannes and BFI? Yep. Um, Yep. So she, yeah, she got the, I was in contention for the Palme d'Or, Atlantic Squads, and yeah, has now been released on on Netflix. And she's actually the the niece of an African filmmaker uh, called Jibril Diop Mambati, who uh, directed Tukibuki, which I don't know whether you've seen that. That's also a really extraordinary film. Um, so she's actually his niece, uh, and she's gone into the family business and is um, diving into into cinema. And so her, I, I can't really speak to Atlantics because I haven't seen it yet. I've only seen sort of trailers and stuff. It does look incredible, um, but her short work I've just really, really loved. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing more from her um, because she's just sticking her head above the parapet now. Um, and, you know, I, I'm really hoping to see a lot of uh, really fascinating work from her. So we've said goodbye to a few significant people in 2019 and hello to a few others who are just sticking their head above the parapet and emerging uh, into the film and television world. Um, if you want to add to our list of people that we've farewelled and said hello to in 2019, you can find us at facebook.com slash cinema or on Twitter at cinema and... Kirsten, you know what our Instagram thing is. It's at the senses of cinema. The senses of cinema. Yeah. Uh, terrific. And you can find us there and uh, leave a comment on any of our social media outlets. So as usual, we now turn to the screen and television film wonders that we've encountered and we want to share with you. 
Uh, so for the last time in 2019, we're looking at our recommendations for the month of December. Mark and Sian, what are the things that you've encountered lately or are coming up that you want to share? Um, oh, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, Philip Pullman's work, um, his Northern Lights work in particular. And, of course, I've been getting heavily involved in his Dark Materials, the, the series that's just come out. Have, so you, have you seen some of it? I've seen the first episode and I'm, I'm there. Oh, I'm so there. <laughs> I, I am with you because those books are incredible. They're, yeah, they're amazing. And to see it, I, I'm, look, I'm hopeful that it's going to be done right because, of course, we had the Golden Compass film that came out quite a while ago now that basically prevented the rest of the, yeah. the books being made, which I was heartbroken by. Um, so it looks, it looks really good. And I was uh, watching the first episode trying to pick who's playing Lyra and it's the actress and I don't know her name off the top of my head, but she was in Wolverine. Um, sorry, Logan. <gasps> yes. She's the other. She's incredible. That yeah. So she plays Lyra in it and she's just, wow. just fantastic. So first episode I'm, I'm in, I'm looking forward to sitting down. It is now, is it? It is. Yes. And I can't remember. It has to be on some. I think it's. No. Some sort of pay service that it I It is. It's have. a streaming service <laughs> and I'm getting confused between which ones because, you know, there's so there many. There are so many. I think it's Prime, maybe? Right. Amazon? Yep. Oh. Yeah, that'd make sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I'm you know, I'm watching The Mandalorian. I'm just into that kind of stuff at the moment. <laughs> just a bit of nostalgia. It's actually aesthetically quite nostalgic for the for the first films from this like 70s and 80s of Star Wars. Oh, wow. It's really quiet. It's very lone um, lone wolf and cub kind of storyline. And of course, Baby Yoda. Just Baby Yoda. I think he's... <laughs> um, he or she, I don't know. It's, <laughs> but they, they are, um, I, yeah, just, it's, and uh, they're actually a puppet version too, which I'm really appreciative of. It's yeah. not CGI. a CG. Yeah. So it kind of gives that, oh, like I'm watching a new hope or yeah. that sort of stuff. And they do the, the wipes of the screen and, um, yeah. So it's really, it's kind of goes back to those kind of Mark Hamill films. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's that's, really, it's great. Really selling you on it. Yeah. Mark, how about you? What is your recommendation? Well, I mean, it might be hard for people to see because I caught it on movie and now it's left. Um, but I watched a film, I think probably my first film from Costa Rica um, the other night. And I absolutely loved it. It was called Viaje. Um, and it's directed by uh, Paz Fabrega. And it's, it's one of those very, very simple films that's just a little romance uh, between um, two characters um, and they are played by um, uh, Katia Gonzalez, who plays Luciana, and Fernando Balanas, who plays Pedro. And it's just a, a, you know, they meet at a party. They have a bit of a chat. It's all shot in black and white. Only got, runs for about 70 minutes. Um, and then they go camping together. And it's about them slowly negotiating their burgeoning relationship and recognising the other um, uh, kind of ties that they have to their own lives um, beyond this little microcosm that they build for themselves in the in the woods of in the forests of Costa Rica, uh, and it's beautiful, beautiful film, and just shot in in ways that you know are breathtaking. Um, you know, there's one sequence where she goes swimming in a lake that is a kind of milky white color. It's almost like she's having a milk bath, 
and she just has her head just appearing out of this this milky lake, and then you know uh, Pedro sort of wanders into frame, and you've got these two perfectly beautiful dark heads um, in this milky white lake. It's absolutely beautiful, um, and a very very tender and very sweet and and really touching film. I was completely blown away by it. I was like, this is short. I don't have much time. Seventy minutes. Costa Rica, never seen anything from there. And now I'm like, I've got to see the other stuff that this um, Paz Fabrega has, has done uh, because I was really blown away by it. So I don't know where people will find it. was on movie, might be already gone. Um, but if you can chase it down, I really encourage you to. So I'm going to very briefly sound like a broken record again and re-recommend Total Control. Should I watch Total Control, Kirsten? I feel, I feel like you maybe <laughs> should watch Total Control. Maybe you will. Um so I recommended this, obviously, after I'd watched the first two episodes and I've talked about it nonstop today. Um, so this is just a, another shout out to go and now that all of the episodes are up, um, it's all on iView. Uh, by whatever means, get yourself onto ABC Australia to have a look at um, what is a quite a riveting and interesting political That is drama. what I'm doing on, at Christmas then. Excellent. It's on my that, to watch list for yep. holidays. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast. Thanks to Sian for joining Kirsten and I this month. And thanks also to our technical producer, the brilliant Troy Mori, who gives us the best moments each and every month of every year. Um, thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I am Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast. We will speak with you again next month. <laughs>